Sunday evening, come out, no, Saturday evening, come out to the harvest party. We can fellowship for hours. So, well, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 7 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anybody need a Bible? Doug's got one in his hand. He's got a few in his hand, but too late. You missed it. <laughs> He's done. <clears throat> For the sake of time, we will read all the text. We'll kind of go through it as we go along. Uh, kind of got a late start this morning. But the title of my message is Sign, Sealed, and Delivered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning, we thank you for the sweet time of worship that we've had, Lord, and, and how wonderful it is to have uh, faith in Henry out, Lord, and, and it's been a blessing. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, knowing the fact that one day we're going to be standing before your throne, the whole church together, throughout the whole world, worshiping you, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. We thank you, Lord, for your word, because you let us know what's what our future holds, Lord. You let us know the hope that we have as your children. And Lord, as we look at this section of Scripture, we pray, Father, that you'd give us not only information, but application in our lives that would draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to have a personal relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, they have not encountered uh, Jesus, so to speak, and, and they have they, they're still dead in their trespasses and sin. Lord, would you especially touch their heart that they might know you and know the freedom and, know, and, and just the, the, the grace of having their sin forgiven. Lord, thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're close to my age, you might remember that 1970 hit song by Stevie Wonder called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. I like reading verses every now and then because it sounds totally different when you read them than when you sing them. But the lyrics went like this. Like a fool, I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Ooh, baby, here I am. <laughs> Sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Then that time I went and said goodbye. Now I'm back and not ashamed to cry. Oh, baby. Here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Now, you may not believe it, but there is something that we have in common with that song. Stevie was singing a song about being sold out to the love of his life. You know, we sang this morning about being sold out to the Lord of our lives, Jesus Christ. This sermon we're going to read of those who stay too long, but we'll see that God's love is still strong. This morning we're going to see those signed, sealed, and delivered and sold out for Christ. Christ. The question that we have to answer is, how sold out are we? And we definitely uh, do not want to stay too long. Ooh, babies. So, <laughs> if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. <laughs> we're going to see number one, signed, number two, sealed, and number three, delivered. Our first point, sign. Now, when you think of, of, of sign, you think of a signature, that's what you think of. A signature speaks of a contract. It speaks of an agreement. 
when a baseball player is about to, to sign with a professional team, there's that, that contract, that, that signature. Both sides sign the contract that you will play for them for so many years. It's an agreement. You want to be signed to play for that team. And the biggest question is, are you signed with Christ? Do you have a contract with Jesus that's going to last for eternity? Because the Bible says in 1 John 5.12, He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son has not life. When we gave our lives to Christ, we became born again. We signed up to a life of love and obedience to our Savior. And in turn, Jesus promised to forgive us of our sin, cleanse us, and reserve a place for us in His kingdom for all eternity when we leave this earth. Now let me tell you about His signature for you. Ephesians 1.17 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. See, His signature was written in blood. He paid for us in full with His own shed blood. He loved you so much that He laid down His life for your sins. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to clean up your, your life before you come to Him. You just come to Him. In fact, Romans 5, 5 tells us that God demonstrated this love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And let me say, if you're not signed up this morning, Jesus is ready to sign you up at any time. He paid the price for you, just come to Him. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks in our studies of Revelation, you recall, you recall that chapter 4 began with the words, after these things. Well, after what things? After the things of the church age that are completed after the church is raptured in the heaven. So beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, we are dealing with the things of the future. Things which is yet to take place on earth, but will take place after the rapture of the church. We saw in chapters 4 and 5, the church taken in the heaven where John described the throne room of God. And the church is gathered all around the throne, worshiping God. And chapter 4 is our creator. Worshiping God in chapter 5 is our Redeemer. In chapter 5, we also saw the scroll written on the front and the back with seven seals. And in it, the right, and it's in the right hand of Him who sits on the throne. We looked at the scroll, scroll as a title deed to the earth that was given over to Satan back in the garden. There when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And then we read the angel proclaiming, who was worthy to take the scroll and loose the seals? There was no man worthy. No man can redeem the earth. And John, realizing that the earth was going unredeemed, he begins to sob, he begins to weep. But then the elder says to John, quit your crying. Do not weep. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed to take the scroll to loose the seals. And then we see Jesus as he steps forth and he takes the scroll. Then we came to chapter 6. We saw Jesus begin to loose the seals on the scroll. And as he looses each seal, we saw the corresponding judgment taking place upon the earth. The first seal brought forth the Antichrist riding on the white horse uh, as, as his rider. Then the second seal, we know, will bring war and the removing of peace on the earth as the red horse comes uh, in bringing massive warfare and civil unrest. The third seal will bring the black horse of famine, and the fourth seal will bring the pale horse of death. These were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, when the fifth seal was broken, we saw under the altar people who had been saved 
during the great tribulation period. They were martyred for their faith. And they were crying out, Lord, how long are you going to keep from judging those people on the earth that killed us? How much longer is this going to go on? And they were told, just a little while longer, there's going to be more that are going to be martyred for the faith. Uh, but then things will really start to happen. Then we jumped to the sixth seal. And we saw the cataclysmic, catas- the huge events, <coughs> kind of judgment that's going to take place with, with earthquakes and, and, and the sun and the moon being darkened and stars falling from heaven. Islands and, and disappearing and mountains forming and, 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 and just being moved instead of, and instead of repenting, men are hiding from the wrath and the judgment of God. In fact, look at, at the end of chapter 6. Verse 15 through 17. We read, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Isn't that an interesting phrase? The wrath of the Lamb. You don't think of a, a, a lamb as being very ferocious, do you? They're, they're gentle, they're, they're docile. Uh, and really, like no one is more gentle and more tender with a trusting heart than Jesus. But the day will come when he will be gentle no longer. The rejecting heart will taste his wrath. The lamb will roar. And this is the side of Jesus that we all need to see. In this sixth seal, the Lamb has thrown a flurry of punches and has the earth on its ropes. It appears to be a knockout punch. And it raises the question there in verse 17, who was able to stand? Well, chapter 7 answers that question. Chapter 6 was this overview of the Great Tribulation period. We stop at the sixth seal. We won't get to the seventh until uh, next week in chapter 8. There's a break in the action, so to speak. You know, as we go through these different judgments in the book of Revelation, there's always a break in the action, a parenthetical, an explanatory pause between the sixth and the seventh judgment. It's a time before a particular set of judgment is complete that we are given a break in the story. We'll see next week in chapter 8, the seventh still being opened. And so between the sixth and the seventh judgment, we are given here this additional information. Between the 6th and the 7th seals, here in chapter 7, there's a break. We're introduced to the 144,000 that we'll look at in a moment. Between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, there's a break. And we'll see John eat a book, measure the temple, and introduce us to the two witnesses. And then between the 6th and the 7th bowl of wrath, we see the unclean spirits that prompt Armageddon. Again, the, the reason is before particular judgment is complete, there is more detail that has to be added for clarity. It helps us to understand. Such is the case is here in chapter 7. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 7. We read, After these things, so this is after seeing the six seals opened and the judgment that was going to come on the earth, John says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
J. Vernon McGee tells the story of a well-known preacher, Dr. Harry Ironside, who was speaking when someone who thought they knew it all got up and said, I told you the Bible was unscientific. The Bible teaches that the earth is flat because it says there's four corners on the earth. To which Dr. Ironside replied, young man, I'm amazed that you didn't know that the earth has four corners. It's called north, south, east, and west. These are the four corners, and it's the direction of these four angels we read about. There's one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, and one in the west. And, and corners here can also be defined as quadrants. In the Greek, it's translated standing at the four horizons of the earth. So we see these four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. Now, wind speaks of judgment. And yes, God does use actual wind uh, in judgment. Psalm 148.8 in the New Living Translation tells us, Fire and hell, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him. Jeremiah 49.36 shows us that, that wind is a picture of judgment. And it says there, Against Elam, I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them towards all those, all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. And Jeremiah 51, 1, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon a destroying wind. So, here we read that the winds of judgment, they're being held back. Nothing can, can move until God accomplishes His purpose. Now, what is His purpose? Well, verse 3, we're told, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. In other words, judgment is being held back until certain individuals become servants of God. See, I do not believe that, that God would permit any period of time to continue on this earth unless there was someone somewhere in a human family that could turn to him, that would turn to him. I mean, that's his purpose. What does Peter tell us in, in 2 Peter chapter 3? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, I do not believe that God would continue to keep this world running if there's not somebody somewhere turning to Him for salvation. See, what I believe we're reading this morning is that there's going to be a time during the seven-year tribulation where God's going to hold back this judgment that has come for just a time until a certain group of people commit their life to Christ. Why, why is that? Well, because God has a plan for them. He wants to use them. Now, the same thing can be said of us, we, the church today. Paul would write in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that really is God's purpose from holding back the this, this seven-year great tribulation period that will come. See, we, the church, we're living in what's called the church age, an age of grace. But, then, uh, but when all those that will be saved during this time will be saved, then it will be time for God to move to that next phase where God is dealing with the nation of Israel once again. And God will once again deal with the nation of Israel as revival breaks out among the Jewish people, as they recognize Jesus is their Messiah, Yeshua, HaMashiach. But right now, God is not done making up His church. But when that, when that last person, that last Gentile is saved, then we're going to be out of here. See, there, there's at least one more person who God is waiting on to give his or her life to Christ before we are raptured out of here. So if that's you this morning, what are you waiting for? 
What is going on? It has to be someone who's always late. Come on. We're all on board. The train's running. The whistle's about to blow. So would you come on already? Could you imagine if you knew who that person was? Man, we'd be all over them like a coat of paint. We'd be like, okay, uh, uh, when we'd be praying for them, we'd be sharing with that person 24-7. Keep looking at them all the time. Listen, we need to be witnessing and we need to be praying for the last person anyway because we don't know who it could be. It could be your neighbor. It could be your boss. It could be one of your employees. It could be your mom or dad or sister or brother. If each one of us in this sanctuary took it upon ourselves to share this week with at least one non-believer, the hope and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ alone, we might be raptured out of here before we get to chapter 8. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Mind. Uh, Anyway. Now, understand the time frame that we're reading about here this morning. The rapture of the church has taken place. Church is tucked away safely in heaven. We're worshiping the Lord. The Antichrist has come on the scene and he's brought about this false peace and, and he's about to throw things into a frenzy when he sets himself up in the newly rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem and demands to be worshipped as God and, and, uh, uh, and judgment's about to happen. And God says, hold on a minute. We have, we have to seal these servants of our God on their foreheads. And that brings us to our second point. Uh, sealed. That says they were sealed. By now, we know what a seal is, right? Large, black, marine animal that kind of barks on rocks. No, a seal was a, a little wax imprint made by a ring that would be pressed into to hot wax to seal a document closed. Nowadays we have, you know, if you're in a business, you have a corporate seal embosser, you know, a type of device that the churches use. It has our name on it. And, you know, we have our board meetings. And when we're done, we put the seal on that to say, hey, this is from the church official document. Notaries, they have seals. Well, here the seal means two things. It means an ownership and it means protection. There's my ring, my, my signet ring, my signature, my stamp of proof that I own it and I will protect this document. So these people that we're reading about will come to faith in Christ during the Great Tribulation period and God will place His seal upon them. Now again, this is not speaking of the church. The church is in heaven. And by the way, we were already sealed when we gave our lives to Christ in the first place. That moment of salvation. Paul speaking in Ephesians chapter 1.13 said, In Him you also trusted after you, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, a promise. God sealed you with His Holy Spirit. That means He put His ID tag upon you. So when Satan comes and he tries to wreak havoc in your life, he takes one look at that ID tag and sees property of Jesus Christ. He says, oops, I need to get permission to mess with this one. He sees that seal. Be like if somebody, a thief was in an airport and he sees this nice, suit, nice suitcase going around the baggage claim area. And he says, I, I like that bag. I think I'm going to take it. And it comes around again and they see the ID tag on it. It looks like it says Tree Brown. Oh, it must be a logo. So you pick it up. Then suddenly you see NFL's Trent Brown, six foot eight and a half, 355 pound offensive tackle for the Las Vegas Raiders walking towards you. Tree Brown is Trent Brown. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Suddenly, you're not going to want to steal that bag. In fact, you'd say, uh, here's your bag, Mr. Brown. It's a very nice bag, Mr. Brown. Can I do anything else for you, Mr. Brown? Have a nice day, Mr. Brown. I'm Yikes! Be crazy. Why? Because you don't want to be beaten up to a pulp. It's out of fear. 
Satan, in the same way, comes to you. And he wants to get you, but he sees that name. The name that's above all names. He sees that you belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he's going to back off because you've been sealed. You belong to Christ. He's got to get permission. Well, here we have in verse 4 a group of people that were told that God is holding back judgment until they are sealed, until they get protected. Look at verses 4 through 8. Who are they? Well, we read, And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 11,999, no, 12,000 were sealed. (laughs) Now, there are many groups out there that claim to be the 144,000. You know, there are are things in the book of Revelation that are hard to understand, hard to figure out. This is not one of them. It's so amazingly clear what God is saying here. Only man can muddy it up. Only man can mess it up. And what's so amazing to me is not so much that there's confusion over who these 144,000 are, but what is more amazing is that any group would want to claim to be a part of this 144,000. I mean, we need to understand that this is during the Great Tribulation period. Judgment is coming upon the face of the earth. Death, famine, war, earthquakes, islands disappearing, hailstones the size of bowling balls. Not the little ones that bounce off the roof, the kind that will actually go through your roof. Why in the world would you want to be here on this, this earth? I mean, even if you were protected from these things happening, who really wants to see them happening? Who really wants to see loved ones suffer and die? What reason would you claim to have to be a part of 144,000 unless, unless you're trying to set yourself apart as being more spiritual than everybody else? And I believe that's one of the reasons that so many groups like to misinterpret this section of Scripture. There's another reason I'll share with you in a moment. But there are groups out there, they like to set themselves apart and say, well, this is us. And many of you know the Jehovah Witnesses was a group that identified themselves as 144,000. That is, until the date they set for the Lord to come back didn't happen and their organization reached over 144,000 members and they said, uh-oh, Now what do we do? Well, what this really means now, this really means that there was this first 144,000 and and that they're going to make it to heaven and everybody after that, uh, they stay on earth, but it's going to be peaceful and it's going to be okay. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Got to make something up. Another group that misinterpreted this section was historical Mormonism. They also claimed to be the 144,000. Ellen G. White the Seventh-day Adventists claim to be the 144,000. Garner Ted Armstrong, his worldwide church of God, claimed to be the 144,000. Amazing to me, because it's so clear. Who are these? 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel that were sealed. And then it lists the 12,000 of each tribe, specifically. So if someone tells you, hey, I'm one of the 144,000, ask him, what tribe are you from? I've got 12 to choose from. 
These are 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. This group is exclusively a Jewish fraternity. What I thought was interesting, I was talking to my wife this morning on the way here. You know, we don't know who they are right now. But God, when he sends to seal these folks, he's going to pick them out. He's going to say, okay, you're from this tribe, you're from this tribe. Because right now, you know, we don't know who's from what tribe. But God's going to clear all that up. And even so, this is not confusing at all. It's very clear. To take it any other way, you have to twist scripture. You have to spiritualize what this is saying. But if you spiritualize the 12 tribes of Israel, then why don't you spiritualize the numbers? Instead of 144,000 or 144 million or 144 billion. See, I do not believe that God would mix the spiritual with the literal so that you can't understand his word. God says, God says what he means and he means what he says. He says it's 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, if not wanting to sound more spiritual isn't the reason some of these groups claim to be the 144,000, then what's the other reason? Well, the second reason why I believe that these groups want to be the 144,000, even though it's during the tribulation period and the world will be falling apart around them, is in claiming to be the 144,000, they are conveniently writing out the Jews out of prophecy. They're writing them out. Listen, the Jews have always had a special place in God's prophetic plan. God's made covenants with the Jewish nation throughout history. Know that three-fourths of our Bible is about the Hebrew race. Three-fourths of your Bible you hold in your hands is about the Jewish nation. Almost every author in Scripture was Jewish. Apostles of Jesus Christ, all Jewish. Jesus himself, our Savior, was Jewish. First church in Jerusalem, Jerusalem a Jewish con- congregation. The prophetic, the prophetic calendar given to Daniel the prophet is all about Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. You see, the tribulation in part is to prepare Israel again to receive the Messiah. That's why it's called a time of Jacob's trouble. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, the tribulation is given that title. Listen to this verse. Alas for that great day, day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. So again, it's a time to prepare Israel to receive Jesus as their Messiah. They don't do that today. They didn't do that the first time he came. It says he came to his own, but his own uh, did not receive him. But one day that, that will land and many will be saved and sealed. 144,000 specifically will be saved and sealed. But here's the problem. Today and all throughout history, Christians and cult members alike have attempted to take Israel out of the prophetic equation. And there are doctrines called replacement theology, reconstructionism, kingdom now, advocate that all of God's promises to Israel were passed on to the church because the Jews rejected Jesus. And there's been a rise in this lately, which I believe is just one more sign saying that we're living in the last days. Replacement theology or especially, or what is called supersessionism, teaches that the church has replaced or superseded Israel in God's future plans. Supersessionism teaches that the people of God in both Testaments are now one covenant community. Israel as a nation rejected the Messiah and therefore lost its inheritance. The modern state of Israel uh, then is no more significant in God's view than any other nation. And the problem is they have to take a very allegorical view of the Bible prophecy in order to get everything else to fit within that, that understanding. And sadly, this allegorical view of Bible prophecy is held by many mainline denominations today. But this isn't new. It goes way back. 
Following Constantine's so-called conversion in AD 312, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. At this point, Christian teachers and, and thinkers and theologians said, uh-oh, we've been teaching that the kingdoms of, of this world are going to fall. But hey, we got, you know, Christian in power and the person of Constantine. It can't fall. So this man named Origen, heavyweight Bible teacher and philosopher of the day, said, well, I think we've been reading the scriptures all wrong. All the promises given to Israel are simply allegories and illustrations. Origen had actually spoken some terrible anti-Semitic remarks towards the Jews. And as a result, the power and the potency and the effectiveness and impact of the church decreased steadily through the years. Origen uh, left the scene and was followed by Augustine. Augustine was this, this you know, gifted uh, speaker. He was a proponent, though, of the case for this, uh, of allegorizing all of the Old Testament. That even in some of today's King James Bibles, some of the headings of the sections speak, when it speaks of the blessings of Israel, they read blessings to the church, while sections that speak of curses upon Israel still read curses upon Israel. Still there. Augustine was eventually followed by Martin Luther. And Luther, although a giant of the faith, was terribly wrong on a number of issues, but specifically he hated the Jews. That's why many Protestant pastors supported Hitler well into his regime. It's crazy because God's word specifically says that God is not done with the nation of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 35 through 37 speaks of this. And I love the way this is worded in the New Living Translation. Listen to this. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and stars to light the night and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's armies. And this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. Love it. Romans 11.25, again, blindness in part has happened to the Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There will come a time when the blinders are taken off because the Jewish people are still God's chosen people. We've been grafted in. They are still the apple of his eye. It's interesting that God knew that men were going to try to twist his word, so he made it so specific in here. Again, not just saying an Israel, introducing the 44,000. He lists the 12 tribes. These are the ones who are going to be that bold witness for Jesus Christ and protected during the seven-year tribulation period. These guys are going to be, you know, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, or Jewish Greg Lories, or, or, or 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Could you imagine that? God sealed them, and they're going to be his own special evangelist during the tribulation period. You know, Matthew 24, 14, speaking of this period, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And I believe this is a part fulfilling of that. This brings us to our third and final point, deliver. Look at verses 9 through 15. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne and the elders, 
and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So who is this great company in heaven? Well, I don't see how this could be the church. Because in verse 13, John has asked, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? The very nature of the question reveals that John had no idea. If it were the church, John would have said, Oh, what's the church? Hey, there's Pete over there. There's James. Uh, what's up, James? But it doesn't say that. John doesn't recognize who they are. But I like the fact that John knows that this elder knows who they are. He just says, sir, you know, verse 14. And then in verse 14, the elder says, you're right, I do know. that These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the lambs. I like it. It's kind of intriguing that one of the elders answered, even though no one was asking that's what an elder does. That's what a mature uh, believer in Christ does, or is supposed to do. Answer even though no one's asking. So if you go to work, or you go to school, say, Lord, use me. Bring me to someone who will ask me about the meaning of life. Well, listen, maybe they won't ask. So you ask for them. <laughs> Let them know. See, an elder or mature believer is one who doesn't wait for someone to ask, just as this elder did. He initiates a spiritual discussion. And again, this is as clear as 144,000 were. You know, Jesus said in Luke 15:10, "Likewise I say to you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Here in verse 11 we read, "All the angels stood around the throne rejoicing." See, what I believe is going on here, and, and what I, I, I really believe is happening is, is, is right after the rapture of the church, we are going to see. Uh, the biggest revival in the history of the world. And, and as a result of that, it's going to produce a great divide. A great multitude of people are going to be turning to Christ. But sadly, a great multitude of people are going to be turning against Him as well. Now, isn't that what happens today, even when we face trials and, and struggles in, in our own life? When trouble comes, it's either going to draw us to God or it's going to drive us from Him. And I, I know that in the trials that we do face, it's God's desire that we draw close to Him. His Word says, draw close to me and I will draw close to you. So we need to turn to God first in times of trials and struggles and face the difficulties uh, with Him. And it's in Him we can find that peace and comfort. Well, these nine, in verse nine, these, these, these folks, they're, they're found that peace and comfort in the midst of the great tribulation. They found it, but they were ultimately martyred for their faith. See, these folks are the ones that refused to take the mark of the beast. They refused to bow down to the Antichrist or his image. They kept their testimony. They kept their faith in Jesus Christ. And we read here there's a great multitude which no one can number, consisting of every tribe or tongue and nation, all those who get saved during the Great Tribulation. Again, uh, I believe that during the Tribulation, more people will be saved than the entire 2,000-year period of the church age. It's just going to happen. There's going to be this great divide. How can that be? Let me give you seven reasons uh, that why this group will be so big, and then we'll close. Number one, first, you have the rapture, which I said already is going to create world chaos. 
Consider all of those people that you've shared the gospel with, all those that have heard the gospel, but never made that commitment. I believe when the rapture takes place, it's going to make sense to them, and they're going to say, I need to get my life right with God right now. Secondly, there will be these 144,000 Jewish witnesses who now know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They have the book of Revelation to, to guide them, and they're going to be evangelizing the world. Again, imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls or Billy Grahams added to many more Jewish people that are saved, uh, sharing their faith. Then you get into chapter 11. There's two witnesses calling fire down from heaven, shutting up the heaven so it doesn't rain, turning water to blood, causing plagues, then being killed and resurrected from the dead in front of the whole world. Probably should come to faith after seeing that. Fourth, according to Joel 2.28, the Holy Spirit will be poured out during the tribulation. Fifth, the cataclysmic events in this world are meant to shake man and bring him to God. Sixth, there's going to be an angel flying through the heavens preaching the gospel. And finally, God wants to give everybody the opportunity to give their lives to him. And I believe God in his mercy and grace will do that uh, all that he can for every person in the tribulation to be saved. But he's not going to force it on them. But there will be an innumerable amount of people that will come out of the Great Tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But understand, these folks, they had a rough time. They've been through the Great Tribulation. Most of them, I believe, are martyrs, laid down their lives for Christ. And they made it through because of the blood of the Lamb. They will stand for truth when truth is unpopular, much like today. They will stand up for Jesus in a time where Satan is in control of the world. Much like today. These white robes and palms indicate righteousness and victory. They are overcomers. They are joyful. They sing praises and they are joined by the host of heaven. They're rewarded. They have an opportunity to be with the Lamb at all times. So because of this, knowing this, we need to remain faithful and sharing and witnessing and inviting people to church even if you're not presently seeing people get saved or respond. Keep proclaiming the word because the greatest revival in the world will take place after the rapture. Now, one more reason I want to point out how this isn't the church is because we know that the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ who will live and reign with Jesus Christ forever. But these, according to verse 15, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. See, sadly, there are those that say, well, I'll wait to get saved until I see the tribulation really happen. So, so what if I'm, I'm martyred, you know, uh, uh, in the process? It'll be worth it. Listen, don't be like the old Stevie Wonder song. Like a fool, I wouldn't stay too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Listen, the answer to that is yes, God's love is still strong. And yes, it is possible for you to get saved during the great tribulation. But you, again, need to understand that people saved during the tribulation are not the church. And therefore are in an entirely different position than the church is in heaven. This company stands before the throne in verse 9. The bride of Christ sits on the throne in verse, Revelation verses 3, 20, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 21. This company serves the Lord in verse 15. The bride of Christ is served by the Lord, Luke twelve thirty-seven. I would much rather live for Christ now than to have to die for him in the tribulation. Because the truth is, if you can't live for him now, you know, how do you expect to die for him then? 
Yes, God's love is still strong because God is a good God. He's a great God. And this is a time of grace. And that brings us to our, our last two verses this morning. Look at verses 16 and 17. Speaking of those who came out of the great tribulation. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These dear tribulation saints will experience such pain and suffering that you and I really cannot even imagine. Maybe the Holocaust, you know, is something similar as far as pain and anguish is concerned. These will have witnessed again many loved ones killed right before their very eyes. And now God is comforting them as he wipes away every tear from their eyes. So as we close, here's something I think, I hope you know by now. The tribulation is going to be really, 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 really bad. (laughs) You know, we've discovered that so far. Jesus said it's going to be the worst time ever. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel said it's going to be the worst time ever. We saw last week that a leader is going to come on the scene promising peace. He'll be the slick politician. But he's not going to bring peace. He's going to bring war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be death. A quarter of the earth's population is decimated. That's pretty bad. You might wonder, well, is it going to get any worse? I mean, how bad? Yeah, well, Jesus said that's just the beginning of sorrows. It can get really bad. In fact, we're going to see in the coming weeks that after the seven seals come seven trumpet judgments, and after that, seven bowl judgments. And just, just listen to these. I'll sum it up for you. In Revelation 8, hell and fire come from the sky. It falls in the water sources of the earth, including the rivers and the, stream, and the springs. The grass on the earth, or a lot of it is burned up, the vegetation. Revelation chapter 9, the bottomless pit is open. Hell belches out its demons in the form of designer locusts that torment people on the earth for several months. Then, then the bowl judgments come on the earth. Chapter 16, foul and loathsome swords all over men's bodies. Water sources are poisoned. The sun scorches people on the earth. Hell comes out of heaven. There's smoke, there's fire, there's heat, there's lightning, there's darkness, there's beasts, there's falling stars. Then, to make matters worse, the bottomless pit is open. The devil and his demons become extremely active. It's going to be really bad. Just one bad thing on top of another. Three things to sum it all up. First, a period of divine reckoning where God shows that He's supreme over all the, the na- nature and all, all the nations. Secondly, a time of demonic troublemaking where Satan will, will advantage, take advantage of all the pandemonium and chaos going on on the earth. But third, the tribulation will be a time of great spiritual outpouring, a spiritual awakening. And you need to know, folks, this is the heart of God. It's not God's heart to judge. It's God's heart to save. Again, what did Peter say? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is going to reach out with a merciful heart to these people, uh, especially during the time that's the worst to come on this earth. He's going to want to save them. That's mercy. That's long-suffering. Paul writes in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, listen, out of the blood, the terror, the horror, the great tribulation, there will be hope and salvation because it's still found in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the tribulation, God's means of salvation remains the same. We are saved by grace, through faith, faith in Christ, by faith in the Lamb that was slain. 
And let me say, God right now is holding back the winds of judgment, but it's not going to be for very long. And picture these angels going, now, now, and push it up against them. Listen, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, be a part of the first group going to heaven. Much better to be saved from the tribulation than to have to suffer through it. The train is coming. The winds are about to blow. Don't miss it. Are you signed, sealed, and delivered? Can you say to the Lord, I'm yours? Don't be a fool. Don't stay away too long. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word says today is the day of salvation, Lord. Father, thank you that we don't have to wait to see all these things that are going to happen upon us or that we could be a man or woman of faith right now. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone that has joined us here this morning and they've not committed their heart and life to you, maybe they've been waiting, maybe they didn't understand what's about to take place upon this planet, maybe they didn't know, God, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for them to pay for their sin. And that all they need to do is put their faith and trust in you and believe that this was done for them and you would forgive them of their sin if they would just turn from it and turn to you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has yet to make that decision, that they would not wait one more moment. That they would turn to you this morning. While their heads bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to know that if the rapture would come, you would go to be with the Lord? You want to know if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? If you don't know that for sure, but you want to make that commitment to Christ, you want to be born again this morning, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you? Anybody at all? It's just between you and the Lord making that, that, that covenant. God, God wants to, to make a covenant with you. You come to Him, repent of your sins. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll write your name in the book of life and you'll spend eternity with Him. Anybody at all, just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Lord, thank you that we, your church, and we're waiting and we're ready to go, Lord. We're waiting for that whistle to blow, that trumpet to sound. But in the meantime, Lord, would you just fill us with your Holy Spirit to empower us to be that witness. Springfield, Ozark, Rogers, every, Rogers everywhere, Lord, to be that witness to the whole world that we might see many people come to faith in you during the times in which we live. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll be blessed to, to do one more song together.